Before Ari Gold, there was Sue Mengers, the agent who for a few decades pretty much ran Hollywood. Plus, who's running the show on TV today? All this on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for listening. From Buffy to Sopranos to Mad Men to Empire, later in the show I talk to Tara Bennett, the author of the book Showrunners, The Art of Running a Show. We talk about some of the heirs to the mighty throne of television creators. But first... By the early 1970s, Sue Mengers was not only the most powerful female agent in Hollywood, she was the most powerful agent, period. Her key clients included Barbara Streisand, Candace Bergen, Michael Caine, Faye Dunaway, Gene Hackman, and Cher, directors such as Mike Nichols, Peter Bogdanovich, and Sidney Lumet, to name a few. Sue Mengers was a trailblazer for women in a male-dominated field, and totally uncensored. Mengers could say just about anything, funny as hell but offending people left and right. At a party with guests she apparently thought were not quite worthy of her, she once said, this is Schindler's B-list. She was just as filterless as the cigarettes and joints she chain-smoked all her life. And her parties, where Michael Caine recounts mistaking a bowl of cocaine for sugar. Even after her career slowed down in the 80s, her parties were the most sought-after invitation in Hollywood, hosting Brando, Coppola, Jack Nicholson, even Lorne Michaels. Mengers was born in Hamburg. Her Jewish parents fled the Holocaust to upstate New York. As a teen, she set her sights on a career in show business, and like so many women of the era, Mengers got her start as a secretary. In the 1950s, she worked at the agency MCA, and her brash, fearless style made sure she quickly moved up the ladder. And in the 60s, she was already a power player as a Hollywood agent to the stars. And just a few weeks ago, the new biography about her, Can I Go Now by author Brian Kello, was released to stellar reviews, and I'm very happy for the chance to talk to him. For his exhaustively researched book, Mr. Kello has interviewed over 200 people in and around Menger's circle. Even her star client Barbara Streisand, notoriously restricted with personal interviews, agreed to talk about her often tumultuous time with Menger's. So even now, after her death in 2011, one could say Sue Menger's is still drawing the biggest celebrities. I had to start off by asking Mr. Kello about the time Sue Menger's plane was hijacked, an incident that must have been terrifying to most, but to Sue, it was just another day at the office. Everyone loves that story. It is awfully funny. In January of 1979, she was on a plane to New York from Los Angeles, and there was a hijacking. And the hijacker demanded that a message be read on television by Charlton Heston. This was part of the demand. And, you know, a crazy person, obviously. And Sue, sitting in the first class section of this plane, was just appalled by this. And she later told her friends after she'd gotten off the plane safely, uh, she said, I can't believe that the hijacker wanted Charlton Heston uh, to read the message. I could have gotten Barbara Streisand to do it. <laughs> so she was, she was agenting even when she was in a situation of grave danger. <laughs> and then there's what she told Barbara during the Manson murders. Yes, exactly. Famous comment. Uh, in, in 1969, after Sharon Tate and, and her friends were killed by the Manson family, 
there was, of course, widespread terror throughout Los Angeles, especially among the rich and famous and celebrated, because initially they thought that this was something aimed at the beautiful people. And um, Barbara Streisand was expressing great concern over her own personal safety, you know, worrying that she might be on the, on the list of the Manson family. And Sue said, don't worry, honey. They're not murdering stars, only featured players. Uh, now, she, this is the kind of humor that marked her entire life and career. It was a sharp, sometimes harsh humor, but it was undi- undeniably very funny. And she loved to go right to the edge. She loved to play very close to the line and throw people off balance a little. It was one of the things that she took great delight in. Reading your book, um, I wouldn't call Sue exactly discreet, except in one important regard, that before her death, she ordered her entire business archive destroyed. So you had to rely on these interviews, but boy, did you get some. Besides uh, Barbara, what are some of the people you talked to for the book? Uh, It was interesting because she she did leave instructions for her personal archive to be destroyed after her death. And so her assistant uh, apparently carried out her instructions. So all those hardcore business records were not available to me. Um, I had to find out about salaries and other concrete information through other means and archival research and things like that. But So I knew right away that I was going to have to find this book through the interview. And it was going to be piecing together the puzzle in a very, very different way, really, from, from, from anything I'd ever done before. So uh, in addition to Barbara Streisand, who was my biggest get among the interviews, because as you correctly say, she does not speak to very many people mm-hmm. uh, about anything. Uh, I was thrilled to get Tuesday Well who I think is one of the finest actresses of the 1960s through the 1980s, and also somebody who is not known for giving very many interviews. She's a very private person. She was a fascinating interview. I think she's a great actress, and I was delighted to get her. I was delighted to get Michael Caine, who gave me a wonderful interview. He had a very, very clear memory of how his career developed under Sue's guidance, how his salary escalated at her urging. (laughs) Uh, She was very, very keen that he really be placed on a level with a lot of the top American leading men. That was kind of her goal and her strategy with Michael Caine. Uh, I was thrilled to get him. Uh, So many people I spoke with, Candice Bergen, Diane Cannon, Elliot Gould, Peter Bogdanovich. Would you say that most people liked her? Yes, I would. And I think she wasn't always easy to like. Uh, That was one of the the most fascinating things about working on this book. She was a complicated woman. She was a very good friend, a very loyal friend. But she could also be hypercritical. She could also be downright cruel at times. She thought that her, her constant scrutiny and criticism of her friends and clients was always in the service of their, their careers and their lives and the betterment of same. <laughs> I mean, she was everything that she said to them was for their own good, but I think uh, sometimes it's a little hard for people to process that. Can you give a few examples of some, some of the harsh criticism she gave to her clients? Well, yes. Uh, um, she, would, you know, she would tell Candace Bergen that she hated the way she, the way she was wearing her hair and that she looked awful and she shouldn't do it that way. 
she would she would tell people that they were getting fat, that they were getting old. You know, Barbara Streisand, in fact, told me that she said Sue really knew how to push your buttons. She, if she wanted you to accept a certain role in a certain film, and you weren't quite sure that you wanted to do it because maybe the script wasn't the best, or you know, uh, Barbara Streisand said Sue would say, "I don't know, Barbara, you're getting older." You better do this. I mean, she could be quite manipulative. She had a very strong belief that movie stars needed to keep working in order to remain being movie stars. One of my favorite stories that, that I found was uh, in 1976, uh, Martin Scorsese was putting together Taxi Driver, his, his landmark movie, <laughs> starring Robert De Niro. And there was a part, a, su a supporting part in it, uh, that they, the, the producers and Martin Scorsese said that they were looking for a Sybil Shepherd type. And Sybil Shepherd happened to be a client of Sue's at this point. And she had unfortunately had a bad run of films recently. And Sue said, well, you're looking for a Sybil Shepherd type. Why don't you just take Sybil Shepherd? And they said, well, we're only offering $25,000. This is a very low-budget film. And she went to Sybil Shepherd with the offer, and she said, honey, she would call her clients, honey, she said, you'd better take this offer. You're lucky after your last two pictures to be getting an offer of $25,000. You're as cold as Baskin Robbins. And Sybil Shepherd listened to her, because Sue knew that this was a very good script. And in fact, it did lead to a resurgence in Sybil Shepard's film career. You know, at the height of her power, which was like the 70s, give me an example of what some of really big deal she did for a client. Um, well, the, the first really spectacular deal that she pulled off was in... I mean, she'd been working as a, as an agent very successfully for a number of years and pulled off great individual deals for people. She, for instance, got Gene Hackman the, the leading role in The French Connection when he was not in any way a front runner for that part. And it was just her hammering and persistence that managed to persuade William Friedkin to cast Gene Hackman in The French Connection, for which he won an Oscar, of course, and did not thank her in his acceptance speech, which enraged her to the end of her life. <laughs> uh, um, but the, the, the first kind of really spectacular thing she pulled off was in 1972... Um, she put together the comedy What's Up, Doc, mm -hmm. um, because she represented Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill, and the director, Peter Bogdanovich, and she packaged the whole deal quite brilliantly, and What's Up, Doc, of course, was an immense box office hit in 1972, huge, and um, so she became known as a great packager. Now, packaging, putting a whole bunch of people in the same picture had been around for a while. It was not a new concept. But she kind of elevated it to a different level. Mm. And this What's Up Doc really made her stock skyrocket in Hollywood. And then everyone wanted to be represented by her. Um, I mean, she was, she was just having people beat down the door practically. Uh, to become clients, and and she she represented you know many many of the top stars of that time. Um, she uh, 
also, uh, just shortly after that, Gene Hackman again, uh, there was a picture called Lucky Lady that was being put into production. In fact, it was ready to go to shoot on location down in Mexico. And George Siegel, the leading man, dropped out very abruptly. And they were stuck. I mean, they were ready to go. They were ready to shoot. And she got Gene Hackman cast in the film for $1 million because she knew they had them, she had them over a barrel. $1 million was not a salary that actors were making in the mid-1970s, especially for a movie that turned out to be this bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was Lucky Lady when it was released in 1974. It was a box office disaster. Oh. <laughs> Do you, have you seen it? No, I haven't. But don't, don't waste your time. Okay. <laughs> well, now I know that it cost a million dollars just that one. <laughs> just one salary. Yeah. And, well, um, uh, but one one person she never got was Paul Newman, right? No, but they were good friends. And that, that's a very interesting thing. There were certain people who I think liked her, admired her, but didn't want to be too closely associated with her. And I never knew Paul Newman, but I did know Joanne Woodward uh, quite well uh, at an earlier point in my life. We were we worked together at the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, a couple of times. And these were very elegant people in their own way. They were, they were very down-to-earth people, but they were not the kind of people, I think, who were probably going to be comfortable around somebody as rough as Sue could be. But did that piss her off that they had that sort of feeling about her? Oh, I think so. I think she wanted everybody. I think it was almost like an addiction. You know, she she wanted them all. Um, I was told uh, that Diane Keaton had very similar feelings about her, and Diane Keaton's sensibility was not really a good match for Sue's. Diane Keaton didn't really trust her. Um, Jane Fonda resisted her her blandishments for many many years, so she wasn't everybody's cup of tea. By any by any stretch of the imagination. On that note, let's go back a little bit um, uh, into her background. What was her relationship with her parents? Uh, it was very troubled. Sue came to the United States in 1938 when she was about not even six years old, and uh, the family had escaped from Germany, from Hamburg, where where she had been born. Uh, they spoke very very little English, and they were sponsored by another family to come over and they settled in Utica, New York, which is a very remote spot upstate uh, that was at the time kind of a thriving industrial town. It was right in the, in the rust belt, as they call it. A lot of manufacturing went on there and, but it was far from glamorous and it was a long, long way from New York city. And they settled there. The father, George Mingers was a not very successful salesman, and he was also an inveterate gambler and often in debt. And in 1946, he was quite badly in debt and he couldn't get himself out of it. And he came to New York City, checked into a Times Square hotel room and committed suicide. And the, uh, Ruth Mengers, his widow, and Sue, who was their only child, shortly afterward moved to New York, to the Bronx, and uh, Ruth the mother got a job as a bookkeeper and they struggled along as best they could. These were years that never left Sue. 
she was terrified of the memory of these years because they were very hard scrabble years. And this is when her entire fixation on the best, the finest, the most glamorous, uh, the most celebrated began. Mm. She, it, there is definitely um, an element of pathology in all of this. Uh, she, she, as time went on and she became more successful and famous herself, she really didn't want to be reminded of, of anything other than the A-list. Uh, she didn't want to be reminded of her past in any way. She did not want to associate with ordinary people who were not famous. Uh, she was really haunted by this. She was depressed by it. And it, it, it the, I think this is, I, I designed this book as a comedy, as you can probably tell. It's just chock full of, of funny stories about Sue. But there's also a real undercurrent of depression throughout this this story. And it made me think when I was writing it, you know, she was a, a fabulously witty woman. But they always say about the great, the great comedians that they always had an undercurrent of sadness about them. And her mother was a very difficult woman. Oh, God, <laughs> wasn't she ever. Uh, yeah, the mother, Ruth Mangers, I did find mostly a very unsympathetic character. I tried to understand her as best I could. But uh, I did talk to a lot of people who had known her. Uh, Ruth was, I think, like many, many refugees who, who settled here. Um, she was very, very afraid of rocking the boat. She, she wanted to be safe and settled. And she did not encourage her daughter's aspirations to a life of glamour and, and money. Uh, she was afraid of that. I think she just wanted her to settle down, be a secretary, get a nice job and marry and have children. And she couldn't really embrace her daughter's success. Uh, it was very alien to her. She was a very fearful woman all her life and a very, very critical one. Sue, Sue picked up on her mother's criticism and scrutiny and used that technique on her friends all her life and could never seem to see. Yeah, was she self-aware of this? No. I, I, you know, interestingly, she was very deeply in therapy, and I, I was I was telling somebody the other day I would give anything to know what those therapy sessions. <laughs> well, those were. are probably burned. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, but uh, Barbara Streisand did tell me in our interview that one time she said, "Sue, lay off. You're 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 sounding like the mother that you profess to hate." Uh, and she couldn't seem to get her mind around that. But Sue worked her way up. She became a secretary, and she kept this dream you were talking about, and she landed these huge clients, among them Barbara Streisand. She was working in this very, very male-dominated field about the time. What would you say was her sort of point of view of that situation for women in, in that day? Well, that's a good question. I went into this assuming that she was this trailblazing feminist because she came into all this as the women's movement in the U.S. was really gathering steam. Uh, that was not really the case once I got into the research. Sue liked very much being a woman in a boys' club. She liked manipulating the men. She liked playing them. And she was not in any way a great mentor to other women. I think she was very happy for her the success of her women friends, and she certainly, uh, her closest friends were, were women for the most part. Um, very, very loyal friends. 
but she didn't self-identify as a feminist. I mean, I think she just kind of rolled her eyes in a lot of ways over the whole feminist movement. As long as she herself was making a good salary and a competitive salary, she didn't really see herself as somebody who was breaking down the walls for others. And I think she was, she was too self-involved, too narcissistic. Her own ideas uh, about men and women really veered back to an earlier time. Her, her big expression with her friends, if a, a woman friend of hers was, was dating a, a, a promising, prosperous guy in Hollywood, Sue would say, honey, close the deal. <laughs> the deal get him to marry you then you won't have to work anymore uh so that was that was not really 1970s 1980s stuff. it's hard to see those two to put those two sides of her together because it seems like she didn't live that way but she wanted the other women to i don't know it's it's, it's very it's very hard to consolidate that <laughs> it is well uh it it she she was she was a massive country and uh, and I, I think she enjoyed being a mass of contradictions. I think I think she enjoyed being somebody that people couldn't quite figure out. Let's talk about those parties. <laughs> <laughs> what what were they like? They were wild. Uh, she she entertained at home, and she did business at home. And this was a a, a fantastic thing because she would she would have these both large parties and then more intimate dinner parties at her, at her house in Beverly Hills. And, uh, she would serve comfort food because she thought that despite the fact that all these people were rich and famous, this was what everybody liked. They liked roast beef and brisket and chicken pot pie and lasagna, uh, and home cooking. And, um, so she would serve these very kind of tasty down home meals and there would be a lot of pot and some cocaine, and deals would be made at these parties. Uh, she would invite a director who was casting a new picture, and she would invite her actor clients. And she would seat them together, and often by the end of the evening, the actor had walked away with a part in the new film. Uh, this, this happened a lot. Going into the 80s, the new Hollywood started to emerge. You have a new generation, the Lucases, the Spielbergs, a new type of management agencies, Ovitz and Ari Gold and all this. And where, where did this leave Sue? Well, it, uh, she wasn't happy about these developments. Uh, as the real hardcore money men began taking over films in the 1980s and the multinationals were taking over the studios right and left, uh, it, it ceased for her to be a creative game. For all her toughness and roughness, Sue really prized creativity, and she loved creative people, and she understood them. I mean, she was a very smart woman. And as it became more about numbers, uh, she lost interest. She lost heart. And uh, as the 80s went on, she, she just wanted to dial back the clock. It just wasn't fun anymore. So Sue didn't really, she didn't fit in after. And, and what happened to her? Not really. Well, of course, there was also a big emotional break with her. It was, it was, it was really traumatic. Uh, she, she lost her star client, Barbara Streisand, in, in 1981 uh, over a film called All Night Long, co-starring Gene Hackman. And... It was a film directed by Sue's husband, Jean-Claude Tremont. 
and uh, who was a, a kind of an interesting fellow, a very intelligent man, Belgian-born, uh, to whom she was quite happily married. And he didn't work very much. Jean-Claude was kind of, he was almost the male version of a lot of those famous Hollywood hostesses like <laughs> Connie Wald and people like that, you know, because his wife was the big player in Hollywood and the breadwinner. And he sort of, you know, supervised the parties and, and, uh, and sat on the sidelines. And he was... Uh, Another way that her sort of feminist uh, theory didn't really stick. <laughs> absolutely. She encouraged all... In her own life. To, ...to go after these power men, but that's not who she picked. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, continue. Oh, so anyway, Jean-Claude had put this picture together called All Night Long, which was a very interesting comedy about people in Los Angeles who work at night. And uh, it was initially cast with an actress named Lisa Eichhorn, who was very much on the rise in the, 1980, the early 1980s. And uh, uh, they started filming with Lisa Eichhorn. It didn't work out. And Sue had her replaced with Barbara Streisand at a salary of $4 million for a little under one month's work. And... I mean, Barbara Streisand told me, she said, I, I loved the idea that I was getting more money than any woman or man had ever made. She was very careful to put it that way. Uh, it was a history-making salary. And Sue thought, because every movie Barbara Streisand made practically turned to gold, that this was going to be a great success for her husband. Well, in fact, it was not. The movie was a very unusual comedy, not the kind of thing people expected from a Barbara Streisand picture, and it died at the box office uh, when it was released. I can remember, I was in college, and I was going to go see it. I thought, well, I've got exams this week. I, I'll go see it on the weekend. Well, by the weekend, it wasn't there anymore. And uh, Barbara Streisand, shortly after this, um, there had been tension between the two of them because uh, Streisand had become very involved with developing Yentl, at this point, and Sue thought it was the most ridiculous idea she ever heard of. She made fun of it. She ridiculed it in front of other people. And Streisand's feelings were quite hurt by this. And so uh, after All Night Long failed at the box office, Barbara Streisand called her into a meeting and said, you know, I think we don't have the same taste, and I think we should continue to be great friends, but, but not... Asian and client uh, at anymore. And Sue said, well, if I can't be your agent, I don't want to be your friend. And Barbara Streisand was quite shocked by this. And she had assumed that they would be able to segue very naturally into a new kind of relationship. And Sue wouldn't really allow for that. Um, it was devastating to her not to have the biggest star in Hollywood on her roster anymore. And again, there you see the fragility of the whole construct. She, she felt utterly threatened and vulnerable all of a sudden. And after that, she lost heart for the whole, the whole business very quickly. And it was quite a long time because she died in 2011. So she had quite a lot of years that she was seemed, according to quite nostalgic for a time that wasn't anymore. Yeah, she did. And she became... She became a little bit of a, 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 in some ways, a, bit, a little bit of a Norma Desmond figure. 
um, she would kind of sad thing that I found it was that when when new people there was a, a constant parade of people coming to the house and current new people they knew about her legend they wanted to seek her out get her advice which was always very astute it's like people like Tina Fey and things like Tina that. Fey as Kathy Griffin I mean, young directors and producers uh, John Goldwyn um, they, 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 they really beat a path to her door and, and she had very good advice to give them for the most part. But when people would, these younger people would come, it was like they were getting a guided tour of a museum almost. She would say, all right, well, first of all, you have to come in here. And she would turn on the, 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 the VCR and show them her 60 Minutes interview with Mike Wallace from 1975 when she was at her peak. She was very proud of it. And she wanted... She wanted people to know that this was when she was a big deal. She used to say, this was back when I was alive, which is just so sad. Yeah, yeah. It's so touching, I think. Um, but she never lost her sense of humor. Before I let you go, Mr. Kelly, to, to end on a, on a more Sue Menger's note, why don't you tell me one of the stories or, or one of the things she said that you found the funniest during the work on your book? Well, one that just pops to mind because I, I was talking about it last night at a reading I did at a bookstore here in New York. Um, she helped put together Pretty Woman, which was a complicated genesis of a movie, um, which I go into in some detail in my book. And they, it wasn't at all sure at first that Julia Roberts had the leading role in the film. There were many complications. It was finally all worked out with Disney, and it was a go. And Julia Roberts came to her and said, well, I have one problem. And they all said, well, what's that? And she said, I don't do nude scenes. And Sue said, but she's playing a hooker, for God's sake. What does she expect? And then she called Julia Roberts when she found this out, and she said, Honey, if I had your body, I would be shopping naked down the aisles at Gilson's. <laughs> and that's a very good example of how she did business. You know, she disarmed people with her wit. And, and what did Julia say? Julia laughed and, and then, you know, agreed to do the picture. <laughs> <laughs> but not the nudity. <laughs> no, no, not as much as they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Kill, this is so great. And thank you for the book. And thank you for your time. Great. I enjoyed it, too. The duties of a TV show's head honcho, the so-called showrunner, often combine those traditionally assigned to the head writer and executive producer. And more often than not, she or he is the creator of the series to begin with. During what is often referred to as a golden age of television, the early 2000s, we watched many big showrunners at work. David Simon's The Wire, David Chase Sopranos, Joss Whedon's Buffy, Judd Apatow, Freaks and Geeks. And already today, you can see many of the talents fostered by these showrunners. Marty Noxon, the showrunner of this year's breakout hit Unreal, wrote for the cult TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer with showrunner Joss Whedon. And one of my favorite Buffy actors, Danny Strong, is a co-creator on the mega-hit Empire. Madman's Matthew Weiner wrote for David Chase's Sopranos, and Ronald D. Moore, showrunner on Battlestar Galactica and Outlander, started on Star Trek. You get the picture. Many of TV's biggest creators right now are following in the footsteps of some real greats. 
How have the writers and creators on the newer shows been influenced by those showrunners they worked for and watched? And where are we now? What are the major trends? And are we seeing more women in the role of showrunner? I wanted to talk to Tara Bennett about this. She's the author of the book Showrunners, The Art of Running a Show, which is also a documentary. For the book, Tara Bennett interviewed some of the biggest showrunners, Joss Whedon, Damon Lindelof, and Ronald D. Moore. Miss Bennett is also an adjunct professor in film and television, and she's written several books on TV shows, like, for example, about Lost and Sons of Anarchy. Thank you so much, Tara, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, what would your definition of the golden age of television be? Well, I think we're kind of in our second one. I would say the golden uh, age that originally happened was in the 50s when television really hit its stride, figuring out that it wasn't just radio uh, programming on with visuals and that it really you know, found... Um, it's its voice with uh, plays, one act plays with uh, variety comedy. Um, and then we really, I think, have come through to our second kind of golden age where uh, shows like The Sopranos and The Wire and um, now, you know, to, to the just the dense quality of television that we have in front of us. You know, I think uh, the thing that most people will say nowadays is not that there isn't good television, it's there's too much television, and a very large amount of it is excellent. So if you were writing part two of your book, Showrunners, right now, um, who, who are a couple of people you'd feature? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, obviously, we've got um, shows like Empire. Um, we've got Lee as the showrunner for that. We've also, um, you know, got Dan and Dave from Game of Thrones. Um, you know, that show's been such a success, especially, you know, pushing into genre and fantasy, which has not really been a mainstream type of show. It's, you know, actually creating, um, uh, not unlike horror with The Walking Dead, um, a pathway for people to actually want to find more programming that of its likes. Uh, you know, I still love The Kings. The Good Wife has been on for seven years, but that's still a network show, which is very hard to keep the quality um, that The Kings have held for that show for years. Um, and that's, you know, in and of itself, you know, uh, kind of an amazing thing to achieve of 22 episodes a year of the quality that they've done for as long as they have on network. You know, you've got a lot of really great showrunners doing 13 episode seasons. Um, you know, with uh, Steve Denight with Daredevil, which was just, uh, you know, came on Netflix and had a great debut season. You've got, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you've got Damon Lindelof with The Leftovers going into its second season. Um, you, so you've got a lot of uh, showrunners that have gone to the shorter model. They don't get paid as much, but they get to tell more concise stories where they don't have what they would consider the bloat or just the the overwhelming amount of work of doing 22 hours of a, of a, of a TV show every season. I'd like to talk a bit about um, Joss Whedon, the creator and showrunner of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Pretty much every show you see these days, you can find a writer from Joss Whedon's writer's room on Buffy that working on a new show. You have like uh, Marty Noxon on Real, Danny Strong doing Empire. You have David Greenwald Grimm and David Fury who did Lost in 24. And that's just a few. Why was Joss Whedon so good at fostering talent? Um, two two things with Joss. And yeah, I've had a, a one. I was just a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's actually the show that launched my writing career. So um, I was really 
um, in love with the show, the structure. That was probably one of the first shows where I really paid attention to how they wrote the show. Uh, it was really one of the first shows where the writers became kind of rock stars along with the cast. You know, Sarah Michelle Gellar, David Boreanaz for the stars. But then you also knew the names like Jane Espenson, if she wrote some of your favorite episodes, or Marty Noxon, or Steve Denight, or, you know, um, Drew Goddard, who went on and now has a huge movie career as a screenwriter. I'm going to give you all a nice, fun, normal evening if I have to kill every single person on the face of the earth to do it. Yay. Joss really won... Um, had, was very exacting with the standards of what he wanted from his writers. He wanted them to be able to do um, the tone of his show, which was multiple voices. Some some episodes might be more horror-centric. Some might be extraordinarily emotional. Some episodes might be more comedic. And he really liked to foster talent in his room with people that could do all the facets of what he wanted to achieve in his shows. And that wasn't just Buffy. It was Angel. It was, you know, when the show went on and and... Firefly became, you know, the short-lived um, kind of iconic show that it is now. Um, he really wanted a multifaceted room and really fostered um, people's voices to be able to achieve that. And then the other part of it was is that he wanted to mentor very, very specifically have his writers become producers on his shows so that when they were producing an episode that they wrote, they were on the set. They learned how to um, answer the questions, make the creative decisions, or were involved in casting their episodes um, because he wanted them to go on and do more than just be writers. That's amazingly generous to do that. It is, and it's rare. You know, there are not there are not a ton of mentors out there because it is a competitive business. I interviewed uh, Maria and Andre Giacometto, who were executive producers on Mad Men a while back, and, and they were talking about that they both had worked on Star Trek and that the reason why they could go on from there, that they learned sort of everything from there. Every human emotion and conflict is contained on that bridge in the cockpit of the starship. So if you've written emotions in there, you can take it out into any, um, like the Mad Men world, for example. I feel like so many of the genre shows really have helped breed kind of multifaceted writers. Um, Star Trek, the Whedon shows, uh, Ron Moore, he, you know, he came from the Star Trek world, then had his first show running success with uh, Battlestar Galactica, and then now is doing Outlander. Um, shows that do a lot of metaphor um, are really a great training ground for people to be able to um, really focus and hone in on what the thematic emotion is that they're trying to um, put forth. And once they learn how to create metaphor um, in an environment, they're able from, from, you know, my conversations and interviews with many writers and, you know, just ob observations of those that I tend to like a whole lot, they feel they, they're, they're much stronger at being able to get to the through line of, of what they're trying to say emotionally or thematically. <laughs> What's this all about? I've learned from observing Lieutenants Taurus in Paris that humans sometimes require a pretext for being intimate with one another. Intimate? Resistance is futile. You know, I think Star Trek was a huge breeding ground for a lot of people that are working today. The, the various iterations, you've got Brian Fuller who came from that, who went on to Heroes, so another metaphorical show. 
And then he's gone on to create many of his shows, which often have death at, at the at the theme, at the heart of it, Dead Like Me. Um, he did Wonder Falls. Of course, Hannibal's just finished its, um, its cult, but very successful run. Pushing Daisies is one of my favorite all-time shows. Um, and so you've got um, uh, these places that bred writers that were able to kind of really hone in on on how to get to the emotion, even if the surrounding package was maybe distancing to some viewers, the emotional heart would grab somebody and and have them watch. What about someone like Judd Apatow? What what has his legacy now? It's it's interesting because I think what he it's been really great about him is that he's been trying to foster talent, you know, with Lena Dunham and what girls did and, you know, that's a very um so what Judd Apatow is freaks and geeks. Yeah, free, yeah, and uh, that's one of my favorite shows, you know, Paul Feig and him did Freaks and Geeks. What a great little time capsule of 18 hours of a television show that really captured um, a, a time and place um, in, in an era and that feeling of, you know, um, grow, trying to grow up and figure out who you are. And, you know, um, it was, I think, definitely a show that was ahead of its time. I love being told not to drink by a pothead hippie guidance counselor. It's probably a bar in the teacher's lounge. Yeah, probably. Hey, Stroker, hey. 10 bucks for the cake. I know. Don't weasel out on me. Cut that hair off and I'll sell it. So who are the, some of the people that are following him, sort of? You, you mentioned Lena Dunham. Um, you know, he saw somebody that's a comedic um, voice and a, um, a voice of, you know, her generation and reflecting her type of experience um, living in New York City and what she experiences at this, you know, the 20s. Um, and I think that, uh, I think what's great about him is that one, if you look back at Freaks and Geeks, he and Paul Feig pretty much cast all of this generation of Hollywood in that show. You know, there's 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 nobody on that show that hasn't gone on. Jason Segel, James Franco, um, Lisa Cardellini. And now he's working with Amy Schumer, another super powerful writer. Exactly, yes. And so he's finding the new voices and finding and being able to help back them, you know, and say, hey, you know, these are these are talents that um, that you should be paying attention to. And, you know, even if I'm not the guy that's going to be doing the day-to-day writing of it, I'm going to put my name on it. There were so few um, women. I mean, there not even one we mentioned in that in that one. How, how are things now? It's still really slow. You know, it's 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 not um, it's really not a place still where, you know, we are 50 percent of the population. And that's what you should be seeing in terms of showrunners, in terms of um, directors. Um, obviously, television is is definitely known as a place where more female women, especially female actresses from the film world, can find really strong material for them to be the lead characters for, but you are not seeing still, you know, maybe 12% of, of the, of the entire um, pool of showrunners and writers that are out there that are female. You have Genji Cohen with Orange is the New Black and, and Jill Soloway and, and Shonda Rhimes, of course. Well, yeah, she's an empire. Yeah, absolutely. She's got so many shows. I mean, there's a whole Thursday night lineup of everything that she's, you know, executive producing, which is great. But in the same token, you know, th- those successes are fantastic, but they're not, a, uh, you know, it, we're seeing some some movement um, in basic cable. We're seeing definitely some movement in streaming. But then, you know, places like HBO, they don't have a single show, female showrunner on any of their shows yet. And, you know, that's like, are you serious? HBO is, you know, is known <laughs> yeah, for, you know, its quality programming. So, you know, to know that statistic is still, 
it's kind of dumbfounding to 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 think that that's actually the case. And so well, it's what's um, girls on. Um, well, she's, well, she's a showrunner for that, but it's, it's, they're not, she's, she is a showrunner, but it's also Judd, um, is got the co on that. And, but there's, there's no dramas. Uh, Let me clarify that there's no dramas with a, with a female showrunner. So that's, that's, you know, and that's, you know, their wheelhouse still, you know, obviously HBO has some great comedies, but it, you know, their drama is, you know, what premium based, um, television, they've built their reputation on that and how many Emmys they get. And so to not have a female drama showrunner on HBO is still, um, it's troubling. And finally, um, the shows from that that golden age, they were so often about the, the tortured male character from Tony yes. Soprano to Walter White to Don Draper. Um, what would you say, uh, is, the, is there a theme or a trend right now that you can see? Um, obviously adaptation is a huge trend. Um, and it's a little scary because, you know, film has really gone to this place where, for example, um, you're doing titles and, and properties that are already known. So it might be, um, based on comic books. It might be based on books. Exactly. So, you know, you're, you're diving into the superhero world on television. You're diving into books that have, um, known, um, fan bases. Then the other trend I'm seeing some people talk about is that, you know, it has been so dark for so long that, um, more hope, um, is something that people are finding, um, in a lot of the scripts that have come in in this last, um, round of development that, um, you can, um, have dystopian, but you have dystopian with, um, with, with less bleakness. Um, you have, you can have, um, you know, the kind of angst of main characters, but there's more of a, a kind of warmer or softer, fuzzier kind of, um, overall kind of outlook to the show. And, um, That's interesting. And that's, you know, that's a natural balancing of the scales. You know, people do get a burnout of, you know, well, if all of my options make me feel like I need to take, um, you know, a Vicodin and then take a nap afterwards, you know, that's not good television programming. So um, trying to find, you know, the balance, obviously, after the recession, comedies, um, you know, kind of bounced from that. Obviously, the Big Bang Theory is still um, a powerhouse in terms of ratings and being the kind of warm comfort food that people like. Tara, thank you so much. This was so interesting. Thank you for taking the time. It was wonderful to talk TV with you. It's always a pleasure to do that with somebody that knows television as well as you do. So thank you. Thank you to all my guests, Brian Kilo and Tara Bennett. And thank you for listening. Check out popcultureconfidential.com for more info. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself, Christina Jörling-Biru. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. 